Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 11th, a Friday, 2022. Um, we are gearing up for an all-American weekend, or certainly a Sunday and Monday, perhaps the two most quintessentially American events, the Super Bowl Sunday and then Valentine's Day, uniquely uh, American celebrations, if that's the right word, consumer celebrations of one kind or another. I mean, they are, of course, celebrated elsewhere, but a few places with as much gusto and... Um, capitalist enthusiasm as the United States. And yet, in a kind of DeLillo-style way, America seems to be unraveling just before that quintessential American weekend. Canadian truckers, uh, apparently, this is a headline from the Financial Times, uh, forcing General Motors and Toyota to curb operations. Those pesky Canadians are undermining American commerce. Um, according to the New York Times, these trucker protests are a test of democracy. I think as much as a test of democracy, they're a test of capitalism and a test, above all else, of retail capitalism. Um, the border blockades, according to the Times, are leading car makers to shut down facilities as far as Alabama and other stores, including supermarkets. Um, meanwhile, the political regime in Washington is being haunted, according to the Wall Street Journal, by, um, by inflation. Uh, it's increasingly being called Biden's inflation. Um, and all this is being compounded by the crisis of our supply chains, a term that most of us didn't know before COVID, but increasingly has become uh, a concept that everyone seems to talk about. The consequences, of course, uh, are that uh, the price of Valentine Day flowers are surging. Um, and apparently, according to CNN, uh, the trucker convoy could disrupt Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not quite sure how, perhaps by increasing the price of beer and chips in supermarkets. One guy who's done a lot of thinking about American infrastructure, particularly on the retail side is my guest today. Benjamin Law is the author of uh, a very acclaimed book, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. It came out a couple of years ago, but I think on a day like today, it's particularly relevant. Benjamin is talking to me from Brooklyn in New York. Uh, Benjamin, is the American, I mean, it's obviously the American supermarket is quintessentially American, but is the supermarket itself, you know, in a thousand years when America lies in ruins, will historians look back and say that was one of the accomplishments of the American civilization? Well, it's a little double edged. It's definitely American as uh, jazz, t shirts, uh, roller coasters, and every one of the other great kind of flamboyant American. Uh, Apple pie is it as as American as apple pie, Benjamin? Trying to avoid that one, but but it's it's as it's American as apple pie. Um, it was created here uh, for supermarket because the idea of a store that ran on volume that was blown out that was bigger than anything you can imagine 
um, where could, could customers could go up and touch the merchandise uh, prior to the kind of American supermarket. Uh, you weren't really allowed to touch the goods. You gave your list to someone who sat behind a counter. Um, but that all changed. And it, it was, it's a very American invention. And when it previewed overseas, the first American style supermarket, kind of the grocery store of today, that uh, went overseas was in 1954 in Rome. And mm, when- Of all places, right? Yeah, when the Romans saw it, they went crazy. <laughs> They're literally, women were running up and down the aisles screaming like, this must be heaven. Uh, it was written up in all the newspapers. The, the Pope made uh, an address from the Holy See, kind of acclaiming <laughs> the miraculousness of the American supermarket. Uh, and it's something we totally take for granted. <laughs> and, uh, and I find that fascinating. And that's kind of American, too, that we have this miraculous, um, absolutely dreamlike thing where we have more options than kings and emperors at our fingertips. And it suddenly boiled into a chore. That, that, uh, so so let, let's get technical, uh, Benjamin. Um, when is a supermarket not a supermarket? How big does it have to be? And it's not a department store, isn't it? Uh, you know, I grew up in London where department stores were, if not dominant, certainly iconic places like Selfridges and Harrods. Um, there's a difference between a supermarket and a department store. And not all grocery stores, particularly corner grocery stores, are supermarkets, right? Oh, God. So there's like an entire Byzantine taxonomy of markets and supermarkets and convenience stores, specialty grocery stores, grocery stores, supermarkets, hypermarkets. Um, and, and I, you know. Uber. You Has anyone ever come up with an Uber market, Benjamin? Uh, they, there will be one, um, but but I don't think that's a term quite yet used, although we just dip into the metric system and go all the way down. Right? There's like a nano market um, that some, somebody in Silicon Valley is working on. Uh, I, the truth is, a lot of these distinctions matter a lot if you're in the trades. And when I was researching the book, I was pouring over the trades, so I'm quite familiar with them. I think what's most interesting about them is from a customer experience, they basically blend together and seem indistinguishable except for maybe the footprint is growing and, and you have your average supermarket to answer your question directly i would define as something with around forty-five thousand different items in it that skews or stock yes yeah, skews which and, um we learn from your book uh, a skew is a thing right an item it's just an item it's just a thing so you have your hot sauce that's one skew but you have it in you know mild that's yeah. a different one you have it in large large mild is a different skew than uh, you know, a medium hot. Uh, and I know a little bit about how to get into supermarkets. Uh, one of my closest friends, if not my closest friend, um, sells, he, he's in the B2B market selling weird stuff like dried tomatoes and caramel mix into supermarkets. And I didn't need to read your book to understand that it's a, the whole thing is a huge scam that you pay the supermarkets to, to, to position your, your, your goods. So when you go to the, the checkout counter and there just happens to be a delicious bar of chocolate or packet of chips, it's because the, the manufacturer is paid to be there. I guess it's the same as any store. That's right. And I think there's degrees that we all know that. Like, I think you, you take it for granted that an end cap with a big display is probably paid for space. But I think what is surprising to most people, certainly to me, is that every inch of most supermarkets are accounted for and sold. And they're pricey. When I was researching the book, I think it was like $55,000. Uh, is that how they make their money? I mean, they 
supermarkets wouldn't be economically viable unless they were charging their yeah, suppliers. Yeah, that's for, right. They've quietly, the they've quietly reinvented their game. Um, you know, it, so supermarkets, the big in, the kind of innovation, and innovation is such a, a cheesy word that we'd like to splash around a lot, but the big innovation with the supermarket from the general store was that you, by going big in volume, you could reduce price and, and make money on volume. But that turn, it, you, 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 shim, you to cut your margins down real low. And when you cut your margins down real low, it becomes hyper competitive to do that. And so somewhere along the lines, grocery stores realized that you really can't sell your items to anyone if you can't get them on the shelves. They could, you know, you could call it extortion. You could call it paying for space. You know, the Apple, Apple store certainly does it with apps. So it's, it's not unique to the grocery store. Um, but they reinvented their game where they, they do earn substantial profit um, from that. Whether it outstrips what they make from food is anybody's guess, because one of the quick things you learn researching the grocery industry is it is claustrophobically secret. Um, this is like the, the secret sauce, like how, how the mix of, of gross revenue is made um, that nobody will tell you. Uh, but I certainly read and talked to people inside the industry who feel like, yeah, they're making more money based on what's known as slotting fees or trade spend, which is which are these fees that you charge uh, entrepreneur to get their product on shelf. And like I was saying, that's $55,000 per month for like 12 inches, 12 by 22 yeah, inches. I'm not going to make any uh, dirty jokes on that one, Benjamin, on 12 <laughs> inches. But um, uh, you you certainly put your 12 inches into this uh, project. The book, uh, as I said, it came out a couple of years ago, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. It's been a, a huge critical and I'm guessing commercial success, but you spent six years researching this thing. What did you do? You, you, you went up and down the entire supply chain. You were heroic in terms of investigating this thing. That's right. I didn't know if I was heroic, but I was diligent. And uh... yeah, I may not use privately use the word heroic, but uh, <laughs> you're something yeah. anyway. Um, well, uh, I am what I think of. I don't know what other people think. I think of myself as kind of an immersive uh, writer, and and <laughs> I don't do that because I think I'm getting some type of like expertise in the area. But I do like it because I I think it gives the pros the writing. Um, an immediacy that you don't get. So I try to get up and close and personal with just about everyone um, that I can. And really the book is an attempt to talk uh, in the voice and tell the stories of people who really weren't being told um, in the supply chain. And, and now with COVID and uh, the attention on the supply chains, we're hearing more of these voices. When the book came out, I think it was the first time you know, people would really spend yeah, time. Yeah, and you spent time with truckers. You spent time, I don't know if you spent time with the Canadian truckers, but you certainly spent time with the kind of people now who are oh yeah poor, populist unrest the the equivalent in America of the yellow jacket absolutely uh, and you know I the book felt feels pretty prescient in, in many ways and it really I don't think you can understand what's going on with truckers without the kind of background that the the book the context into these people's lives I mean trucking is just such a gargantuan industry. You know, ten billion tons of truck <laughs> of stuff getting moved around. Yeah, and you can't you can't put these in digital pipes, right? You can't no, digitalize uh, a beer. Every trucker will tell you, like, you know, the, the trucks are the be all and end all of the supply chain. Every can of beans you touch, a trucker's touched twice, right? And they're proud of that fact, and it's true. 
the last mile problem, there is no drones that are delivering our stuff, right? This, this stuff still comes in uh, sprinter vans or trucks or, um, and the fact is that the industry is enormously exploitative, um, you know, on every was, level. I mean, I, it seems from, from your book and from your narrative that the further you get away from the, the shelves, those 32,000 or 50,000 SKUs, the more exploitative, the darker this so-called miracle is. You go all the way back to the, the farmers in Southeast Asia, farming fish, the truckers, everyone behind the, um, in this supply chain, the further back you get, the, the, the more they're exploited. Yeah, the book gets, I mean, I, I, I didn't set out to write a dark book. First of all, I didn't set out to write a book on capitalism. Um, but that's definitely turned into both of those things. Um, and I think that's exactly right. What I found most interesting, though, is how much of the darkness comes from basically good intentions and from a desire to serve people. Um, the grocery industry is humongously um, likable. <laughs> the people who work in it are not you know, I think there's a narrative about agribusiness right now that is like these greedy, faceless corporations that are serving up like the global, you know, tasteless, non-nutritious food. And like that critique may well be true. Yeah. And, my, and my friend, my friend definitely uh, echoes that. The people, they're the core of the American, um, the, the American experience. They are the apple pie. If there is any apple pie left in America, they're in the, the retail food business, right? That's right. And, and what they're trying to do is serve customers. And customers ask for these kind of insane demands. They want the lowest price and the highest quality and the most choice all at the same time. And, and they, they think go, they deserve it. They think that's written into the Constitution, don't they, Benjamin? Absolutely. And if they don't get it, they walk away which makes this already super slim margin business hyper-competitive, which means they put pressure on everyone they deal with and it trickles down, compounds down the supply chain. And then when you get, like you were saying in Thailand, or you get to the experience of a trucker, you get these people who are squeezed by the weight of our desires in ways that, you know, again, like in the book, it gets pretty graphic and, um, you know, human bondage, slavery, people getting... Um, yeah, it's not. You no don't think of are happening in 2022, um, but certainly are, and they're happening. Uh, I, you know, I think the book makes a compelling case that they're happening based on serving um, our demands, our, our desires. We, we, we are talking with uh, Benjamin uh, Law, the author of *The Secret Life of Groceries: The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket*. Um, Benjamin, after the break, um, I want to. I want to get into the weeds. I want you to talk about the different supermarkets. You have a particular interest, I think, in, in, in your book, in Trader Joe's. I, of course, want to talk about Amazon and Whole Foods. I want your opinion on Safeway, on dollar markets, even if they're not supermarkets. I want to talk, obviously, about the ethics of farming and environmentalism. So we're going to take about a 60-second break, and then we'll be back with Benjamin Law, the author of The Secret Life of Groceries. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other 
traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Benjamin Law, the author of The Secret Life of Grocers. He spent six years examining this secret life and spent a lot of time, I'm guessing, I'm certainly from the book, in grocery stores themselves. Benjamin, um, thinking about this, I wonder if our, our, our sharpest, our nastiest kind of snobberies come out in terms of where we shop. I have to admit, I would never be seen dead in Trader Joe's. To me, it epitomizes everything that's wrong with places like San Francisco, where I live. I hate Whole Foods, although I sometimes go there. Um, and the same is true of Safeway. Are there cultural, political, ideological divisions between those three, which seem to at least dominate the, the supermarkets of San Francisco? Are you a buy right man? Who are you, I don't uh... even know what buy right is. Where's that? Oh, I'm... I'm, I'm uh... Uh, Rainbow Grocery, uh, by right, great small independent. Rainbow Grocery, I'm well. I'm going to come on to my favorite place, but Rainbow Grocery is a a pale shadow of the Berkeley Bowl. But maybe we can get to that later. <laughs> well, but I think you've hit on something that is absolutely true that I didn't also. But but uh, yeah, groceries are and grocery stores are, are definitely a reflection of consumer desire. And the fact that you hate Trader Joe's is actually a sign that Trader Joe's is doing something right in that it has an identity statement uh, that you can love or you can hate. And um, your scorn is, you know, they can, they can shrug that off because- they I'm sure they love my scorn because I don't have any money and I rarely go to the supermarket. So uh, and, when I go and across, they, there's a big Trader Joe's in downtown San Francisco, well, where I drive between- um, the Bay and my home in San Francisco. And it's always a huge line of cars. So they must be doing something, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think in the grocery industry dominate in terms, I mean, they, their uh, price per square inch um, you know, of revenue that they're making is by far the best. They're making more, like I'd say double uh, than, than Whole Foods, which I think is their nearest competitor. Um, they're, they're up there with like the Apple store in, in terms of like the money they're making per square. I guess they are the Apple store of the, the, the supermarket business. They um, are, but they are, I mean, they're, they're cheesy. They're, they're, I mean, in, in intentionally so Trader Joe's is cheesy. out there. Cheesy, I like cheese. Also, say, I say mean, again? 
I mean, is cheesy good or bad? Cheese is an important piece of a supermarket. Well, you know, at Trader Joe, so I, I had the pleasure and uh, of spending some time with the Trader Joe before he died. Yeah, Joe, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Harden Cologne. Yes, uh, who who started Trader Joe's, and it was really born out of a fleet of convenience stores, um, the Pronto Markets, uh, and you know, he had some really innovative ideas around. Uh, marketing and around the, what the grocery store should be. But fundamentally, he wanted the store to kind of have an opinion, to have a stance. And that, you know, it was built to serve this Volvo driving professor. You know, it started in Southern California and around Pasadena, which there's a hotbed of universities down there. And it moved to Boston area when it went to the East Coast, another kind of like mirror image of that, um, to serve this kind of overeducated, underpaid, Volvo driving professor. The kind of people who watch this show, unfortunately. I mean. Exactly. So you might have just insulted a lot of your. Yeah, your I probably. Li- I only got three viewers anyway. I've lost two of them now. <laughs> but you know, they might be the demographic that likes to be insulted slightly. You know, it might be kind of a turn on. So. And what about? Uh, I mean, we we can't talk about this, of course, without talking about Whole Foods. I checked out their website before talking to you. They, of course, have roses on sale, even if those haven't been undermined by our by the truckers on the border. I once had the displeasure of spending a time with the founder of um, Whole Foods, John Mackey, yeah, who was one of the most appalling people. Um, what is it about Whole Foods that piss people off so much? Well, there's the whole paycheck uh, aspect. Uh, the, you know, it's, it's quite expensive. I think there's a holier-than-thou virtue. Uh, you know, Whole Foods kind of got trapped by... by by Wall Street to some extent, you know, they were this embodiment of mother nature, green, lean into the health food aspects, uh, which of course was a quite expensive. Uh, and they merged with uh, fresh fields and they kind of embody this upper middle class kind of bougie experience. And those two didn't really go together too well. And then all of a sudden Wall Street, when they went public and uh, decided that their prices were too high. And so they started frantically trying to cut prices and they just, the, the kind of Whole Foods image got squeezed in a few uncomfortable directions there. Um, what's interesting about Mackey is you're absolutely right. Like he's a union hating, um, you know. Yeah, I, it was one of the most unpleasant people I've ever met. Um, absolutely. Really. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see that kind of hidden in the Whole Foods ethos, but it's really quite there you know the 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 original green foodies and organic movement was led by a lot of libertarian who would you Uh, rather be stuck in an elevator with john Mackey or jeff bezos (laughs) please i you know that little hole in the top of the elevator i would probably try to stand on each shoulder and uh, are there um are there what's your favorite one i mean what do you think of safeways i you know i am not a I, there's a grocery store that I shop by location. There's a grocery store right across the street from where I live in Brooklyn that I go to, which is horrendously overpriced. It's called Union Market. They play yeah. Herb Hancock. Uh, and and I, I, I guess I like that about them. And they have a great mushroom selection. You know, they, they really they have. But is that really a supermarket? I mean, I go to Gus's on uh, on Hate near yes. Hate Ashbury, which. I don't know if it really qualifies as a supermarket it's, anymore. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're my, I don't know what you would want to call it. They're, a micro. They're specialty, they're specialty marts in the name of the trade. Um, and I, and I can't have this conversation, um, Benjamin, without, without talking about the greatest of all. I think this is the greatest supermarket in the world. I'm a Berkeley person, but the Berkeley Bowl is astonishing. And is that because it has so much stuff and it's such a, 
an iconic cultural place. I used to live around the corner for many years. It's a cooperative. Does that make any difference? I mean, that's real. That's not just John Mackey-style talk, is it? Well, there, first of all, the word cooperative in, the, in agriculture and grocery can mean a lot of different things. Um, and there are very, very corporate cooperatives. When you talk about milk cooperatives, for instance, it really has nothing to do with like the crunchy image you, you think of. But, but like the Berkeley Bowl, Park Slope, Food Co-op, Rainbow... Yeah, those are there's a worker owned uh, there. You know, you do shifts there. So I think there's a, more of a community experience. I, I, they have lower margins. But I think the, the key to all of those is they would fall under what I would think of as like a specialty store, which means they have a ton of different new items that are like low it's volume. Astonishing. They have so much choice in fresh produce at Berkeley. Yes. Bowl. I don't know You're how they can make it pay. Adventure. You're in a voyage of event. You want to be surprised and tantalized and, and introduced to new things when you go to the store. Um, and I am too, largely. But I think there are a lot of people who, who, who scorn that idea. And they say, you know, just give me what I want. I, I don't want, I, I know exactly what I'm coming for. I want them at a, the cheapest price possible. I'm not going to pay a little more for like some raw cacao bar that, uh, that, that the is the middle market, uh, Benjamin, being squeezed as it is in most industries. Um... Oh, we did a show about America. Somebody wrote the new zones of exclusion have shut out Americans from their own country. Winner cities have become havens of in- inequality and nearly impossible to navigate for those drawing old school paychecks from retail jobs or public schools, very much like the Bay Area. And now we have an image for people just listening of um, dollar general stores. I'm not sure if they're supermarkets, but certainly there is a, a huge oh. bottom end in supermarkets in America. I mean, it's a low margin game. And in all of these industries, and this is one of the big take home messages of the book, there's a lot of structural fees that these guys are stuck with, right? They're kind of like entry entry fees that everyone has to pay. And the one place that you can cut your costs is with labor. And so labor is the place where the costs get cut. Your employees, they, they get squeezed and squeezed. This is absolutely true in the retail world of uh, of grocery. I worked in a Whole Foods for the book for a few months. Um, and and so I saw that firsthand. Whole Foods, of course, has some of the best hiring practices in the business and best employment practice in the business. And there, you know, they, they the schedule was still given to us only a few weeks, I mean, sorry, a few days ahead of our shift. Yeah, We called in and told to go home. Um, and, and there, those practices were not... Uh, officially mandated by the company that they were improper based on what we were told at our hiring. Um, But you knew that given the retail landscape out there that you might be asked to leave if you weren't willing to play ball with the Whole Foods team. Right. But Benjamin, you, you, you know that truckers say you can't deliver beer or chips by drone, which may or may not be true. But certainly Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods must in part be due to Bezos's, uh, and, and he was running it at the time when they did buy Whole Foods, Bezos's obsession with automated labor, with smart machines. Because yeah. the more stores, the, I mean, one of, another of my frustrations with going to grocery stores, which make, again, the Berkeley Bowl so unique, is that there's no automated checkout. There are real people working. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Amazon and Whole Foods is a story. Uh, I mean, it actually makes a lot of sense when you start understanding that that Whole Foods was getting beat up by Wall Street. They're mo- they getting uh, destroyed by by brands like Target and Walmart, which are now dominant in the organic space because organics went mainstream. And the volume, again, 
everyone's got to eat. And so the volume that's being poured through a grocery store is something that makes Bezos' eyes, you know, explode. What, like if he can figure out how to do e-commerce and nobody has cracked this code yet in terms of grocery stores, people are working really hard on it right now. And the pandemic accelerated all those efforts, but nobody's really cracked, you know, getting food delivered in a way that is long-term sustainable, profitable, and will replace retail. And so I think that challenge was there for Amazon. You know, if they can do it, they'll make tons of money. Will they do it? Yeah, probably not because it, there's some, you know, as you said, um, the efficiency right now is pretty impressive and you, you're not delivering this stuff through drones. Uh, but, but that was the idea behind it. I mean, it's just an enormous fixed set of goods that people are buying every day. So you get them to buy them through your portal. Um, it, it just makes the whole, you know, Amazon, which already is, is monstrous, even more uh, monstrous in size. Yeah, it's hard to imagine more monstrous. And if we have a word for that gargantuan, um, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Target and Costco's entry into the, the organic space. Many of our Viewers and listeners will be fans of Michael Pollan's work, of Eric Schlosser, of um, Fast Food Nation, and of the environmental consequences of American supermarkets. I, I know you spent a lot of time researching and thinking about that. How bad for the environment generally are American supermarkets? How much do they contribute to our <laughs> environmental crisis, Benjamin? Yeah, I mean, it's not a question that I can really answer in a pithy manner. Um, they're not good. I mean, <laughs> agriculture is agriculture. I mean, it, it it's very tough to quantify this stuff. I think what I was more, almost more interested in was how much our desires for kind of ethical purity and the, the consumer's desire to like somehow shop in a way that is sustaining the world was getting co-opted by grocery stores, was getting shifted into its own, the marketplace had kind of took those and and created ways of delivering satisfaction to people. So when you you bought something, you felt like you were doing something noble and good, which, you know, you were going to save the world through a purchase. Uh, And that really was borne out in the food world uh, in ways that I think it's encroaching in other places. But, But that more than anything, you know, when you come to down to assessing the way that modern agriculture and our convenience culture is damaging the world, there's a billion ways you can go, um, almost as many as you can put on, you know, a little yeah, bit. a billion um, skews. But um, what about, um, but, uh, okay, let me let me refine the question a little bit. I apologize for it being a, an unmanageable question. I also do a show or did a show called Regenerate uh, about regenerative farming, which is a sort of organic plus farming. We talk to a lot of farmers. It's very hard for a small farmer, especially a regenerative farm, to get their stuff into supermarkets, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, You know, so the supermarket's built on consistency, right? The the nightmare of the supermarket manager is the stock out, which is actually why the, these, you know, the COVID shifts in the supply chain were greeted with such alarm. Um, the whole game is consistency, abundance, abundance, abundance. You're putting this this show, this display of goods for the customer. Um, you know, at a small uh, manufacturer, a small farmer who produces a limited amount, is not going to ever 
produce the orders that a, the grocery store is looking for. They're not going to do it in the consistent manner that the grocery store does. So it, it forces people to scale up. Um, and there's good sides to that and there are bad sides to that. You know, it's interesting um, with regenerative farming, which I'm a big fan of, um, you know, uh, especially, you know, with, with meat. So it's the only way I could ever imagine eating ethical eat meat. Um, but you know, the farmer, Joel Salatin, he's a, he's a good sure, example um, of a very pioneering, controversial, um, he's regenerative farmer. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm absolutely familiar with him. Uh, I would say, however, there's there's, you know, s small is good when it comes to the massive size of the grocery industry and how it's scaling small also allows a lot of bad practices. And so when I went to Thailand, the Thai fishing industry is the quintessential small holder industry. You know, the, the boats that are sourcing the food, which is kind of at the bottom of the aquaculture pyramid that makes up the, the Thai shrimp industry. Those are small holder boats. They're, you know, family farm of boats. Um, but they sort of the like Forrest Gump. Yeah. Lots of Forrest Gump style yeah, smaller than Forrest Gump. We're talking 12-man boats, 30-person uh, boats. Uh, but the worst abuses were on them because they're getting squeezed the hardest for price. Uh, and so the image that, that small agriculture is always a good thing is, is, is frankly not the case. It, what, what is is having a connection to, to the agriculture and being able to, um, you know, if not you, but then the supplier at a place like the Berkeley Bowl or Rainbow or Park Slope Food Co-op, who has an actual connection yeah. with the people that they're they're from and from, so they can validate in a in a way that it goes beyond the current audit system. Um, that's valuable. But the idea that just because something is small or family run, um, it actually is is much less meaningful than you'd think. I asked you at the beginning, um, Benjamin, whether the supermarket is quintessentially American. I think thinking about it a little bit more. What's striking about the supermarket is it's full of temptation. You make that clear in your book. And the darkest miracle of all about the American supermarket, perhaps, is how much bad stuff for us is in there. We know we're living through a time of the crisis of American medicine. Everything's broken when it comes to American medicine. We've done so many shows on that. And yet you go to your local supermarket and there are entire rows full of chips, which everyone knows are bad for you, designed particularly to sell in supermarket. You were introduced to me by Dave Infante, an, ex uh, an expert on alcohol. We're increasingly finding from researchers that alcohol is really bad for you. Supermarkets, are, at least the drink section, are dominated by alcohol. Is there something about the American supermarket designed to tempt us between good and evil? Is there something ultimately moral at the heart of it? I don't think so. I think it, it may well turn out that living life is pretty bad for you. Drinking, yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> so, but I and think it, unless you shop at Berkeley Bowl, Benjamin, that's right. You'll live. You'll live an extra ten years um, on Saturday. probably ten minutes, not ten years. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think what the supermarket does is it's great at channeling desire. And what's fascinating about desire is that it really does come in. Of many different flavors. And as you're pointing out, they're confounding flavors. They're chaotic flavors. They don't align. There's no unity in these, in our desires. What you like and what I like and what someone else like are, are very different. Uh, but the supermarket 
as a tempter. But the supermarket knows. They know exactly. They may not know exactly who I am when they when I come in, but they're very good at figuring out what we want and provide and putting it in our face so we buy it. That's their business, right? That's absolutely right. That's exactly right. Um, now, whether I would put a negative more, I would say there's no the, the moral judgment, if anything, belongs with us. Um, not in, in the supermarket for, for answering our calls uh, and, and trying to serve, serve our, our whims. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it's an interesting question to, to where you draw the line. I think um, ultimately when you look into how you would actually reform things like this, it does have to come from both sides. There's demand uh, related changes and there's supply side changes where um, the, the supermarket suppliers do have great control over what they put on shelves and, and small tweaks to what they buy can have big effects. The problem is these guys aren't equipped really for making those changes. You, you ask the supermarket supplier to start legislating the world based on your set of values and you're in a pretty dangerous place. I mean, even with something as clear cut as human bondage in the Thai shrimp supply chain, which I mean, this is astounding. There's men being bought out of prison, sold onto boats. Right. As this accounted when I was doing the book, 15 to 30 percent of the, the Thai seafood supply chain was infected with this type of forced labor. Right. So what do you do about it as a supermarket supply um, supplier? There's no easy answers. You start moving and shifting to a different region. You're cutting out a lot of good actors who are then forced into a more marginal position. And they often have to take even greater abusive steps, um, mm. maybe not in, in labor, but in, in some other thing. To, to compete, the price that you're asking, because you, you really can't do anything to the people back home who are still demanding the low price that they wanted, or they'll go to your competitor who will tell them there's no problem in Thailand at all. They have a secret supply chain that's excellent. Uh, they then go somewhere else with the same need to get that low price and the same labor problems will crop up there because at the end of the day, there's only so much skin you can see. So it really, what's, what's really interesting, I think, in talking to you about this is that the American supermarket or the secret life of groceries, Mark wrote about in Capital, the secret life of money. This is really the front line of American capitalism, all its strengths and weaknesses, all its desires and um, paradoxes and, of course, inequalities. And it's a wonderful conversation. I actually thought this conversation might be a bit boring, but it's anything but because, Benjamin Law, you're anything but boring. What are you going to do this weekend? Are you going to go to the supermarket to buy flowers and chips for Super Bowl? I am not going to do that. I will uh, I will no doubt go to the supermarket because I find it a relaxing place to stroll the aisles. I'm that type of weirdo, uh, which is probably what drew me to the book in the beginning. Um, and some people will know you, your first book, which was also a big success, Hellbent, book about yoga. You went from yoga to the supermarket. God knows where your third book will be. Well, that was, a, you know, that and that was really a book. And there was an expose on Bikram Yoga that, that led to the allegations on the founder, um, Bikram Chowdhury, who was sexually assaulting uh, practitioners, but actually directly related in my mind to the grocery industry, uh, these kind of like hidden worlds. Have you got, a, have you got another project, Benjamin? Uh, I am, but I'm not really talking about it too much. I mean, the, well, I hope it doesn't take six years. Oh God, me too, and it ruined my life. Because um, otherwise, we won't be able to come back on the show. We need you back. So uh, people need it. It's it, it's been out a year or two, but it's still a wonderful book. The Secret Life of Groceries: The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. Probably more relevant today 
um, with Canadian truckers. Paperback this year. So it, it's oh, new. so the paperback's out this year. So it's very relevant. Yeah. Do you have a new intro? Do you have something on COVID in it? No, no. Although I thought Good. about doing that. I, I yeah, actually, that's so boring the when they have intros on COVID. COVID. Uh, it was, I thought I would have to convince everyone that the supply chain was relevant and the grocery store was this miracle. And it turns out that having a few scary days where you think you might lose access to it and suddenly you understand that the supply chain is important teaches everyone that lesson pretty quick. Well, um, anyway, it's out in paperback. Uh, I'm sure you can get it at your local supermarket. Um, the Secret Life of Groceries by Benjamin Law. What else should people be reading, Benjamin, in these strange times as American capitalism begins to fall apart? Perhaps people will start looting their supermarkets as they're looting pharmacies in the Bay Area. It's funny. I mean, the book that's sitting right next to me uh, that I just finished, uh, a Bright Shining Lie, which is on America's uh, Vietnam, uh, or history in Vietnam, uh, which follows this one lieutenant um, and uses him as kind of a micro. I mean, it is brilliant reporting. It won the National Book Award. What's it called? A bright, a, a bright shining lie by Neil Sheenan. Uh, won oh. the Pulitzer and uh, the National Book Award, uh, and it truly. Oh, oh, can you see me? Yeah, I can still hear. Oh, good. Uh, you disappeared for me for a second, but uh, it, it's a brilliant book of nonfiction reporting. Uh, and it, the echoes of it with our withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and today with the Biden administration potentially seizing the Afghan central bank uh, funds, it really it couldn't be more relevant. It couldn't get weirder, except it does. Benjamin Law, uh, author of a really important new book. Well, and also I'll plug Tony Hoagland. He's also on my desk. Uh, if you know oh, Tony okay. Hoagland, the poet. He's no, amazing. but is he good? He's a fan, fan fucking fantastic. Do you know him? I, I, he died recently. Um, oh, dear. So you can't introduce me. I can't introduce you. I would. He would love this. Um, he's, well, maybe he's, he'll come back, especially to come yeah, on my show. Exactly. You just have to, you know, hold the seance. Okay. Well, enough. Otherwise, we're going to get really silly. Benjamin Law, real honor, fun talk. Read the book and come back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure.